You are listening to Our Urban Voices with Dr. Alphonse Javet, a podcast that presents Christian narratives through diverse voices that impact urban ministry. Here is your host. In this podcast, we cover everything from churches and church planting efforts, mission and missions organization evangelism, and unreached people groups, emerging movements and initiatives, justice, current events related to faith, and the persecuted church too author interviews, and more. Let's get to it. Today we have with us Rachel Jones. Uh, She writes about life at the crossroads of faith and culture. Her work is influenced by living as a foreigner in the Horn of Africa, raising three third culture kids and adventurous exploration of the natural world. She has written for the New York Times, They moved to the Horn of Africa for her husband to work at uh, local universities and help to develop courses and programs. Welcome, Rachel. So, Rachel, tell us a little bit about you and your uh, life in uh, Africa. Well, it's so great to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Um, Yeah, I am an American originally from Minnesota. And in 2003, my family moved to Somalia in the Horn of Africa, actually Somaliland, which is Northern Somalia. My husband and I had two and a half year old twins at the time, and he was teaching at a university there. I'm a linguist by training. And so I focused a lot of my time on studying Somali language. And then in 2004, we moved across the border here to Djibouti where I am right now. Uh, We had a third child, so I've raised three kids. Um, ever since 2003 in the Horn of Africa. And it has been beautiful and challenging and um, faith inspiring. I'm a Christian. And so it's a, it's a Muslim country. Somalis are 99% Muslim. And um, yeah, it's really been an adventure for our family and for myself. So you talk about, uh, I, I was reading your, uh, um, some of your work and it talks about uh, how a toddler's uh, um, tripped over AK-47 and how uh, foreigners were uh, murdered and then uh, evacuation happened. You went from uh, um, Somalia to, um, uh, I believe, uh, what was the name of the country? Remind me again, I'm sorry. Djibouti. Yeah, Djibouti. So tell me a little bit, uh, it's really scary especially being a foreigner in a foreign land, especially a foreign land that seems to be, it's, it's always been like this with Somalia. Um, talk to me a little bit about your, uh, how, what, what caused you to stay? What, what was that? Uh, um, because you're a mom with toddlers. It mm-hmm. just, for a human perspective, perspective it doesn't make sense. So I just want to hear why you guys chose to stay at, I mean, in that region, why not uh, leave and just come back to the United States? Yeah, that is a great question. And actually, I've never had it asked to me in that same way. So, so first of all, yes, it was really scary. When we first moved to Somaliland, we had an open invitation from a university to work there. Um, the people in the village that we were in were very welcoming to us. Of course, we were strange. We were some of the only foreigners to live there, but but still they welcomed us. And so we had kind of a good start, but within a really short time, within the first actually nine months of living there, there was a number of assassinations of foreigners. One was in our same town where there weren't very many of us, as I said, and then two were 
in a village a little bit away from us. Um, and at that point, we evacuated from Somaliland. Our family, with the toddlers, we had 30 minutes to pack a bag and we took off to the airport and we left the country. And I didn't actually go back until 10 years later. Um, and so, yeah, we started off our time in Africa with a lot of kind of drama, I guess you could say, and and things even that fit the idea that people have about Somalia or about even Muslims. <clears throat> but, excuse me, um, when we left Somaliland in that evacuation time, we didn't feel like we were done. We had spent a lot of effort, a lot of time, a lot of prayer, figuring out how to get to this part of the world. Um, a lot of Somalis had really wanted us to come. And so after only nine months there, 10 months there, it didn't feel right to just say, okay, that's over. I mean, when we knew when we, we knew when we decided to go there, that violence was a possibility, that it wasn't an entirely stable part of the world. And so we kind of had that in our minds that something might happen. We prayed it wouldn't, but you just, there's no guarantee. And so to then say, oh, now that there's been this thing that happened, I guess we're done. It just felt really, we weren't ready for that yet. We had kind of just started. We were just learning language and culture and building relationships to a deeper level. And so um, we we spent some time in Kenya, actually, where we received some post-trauma counseling and, and kind of spent time just figuring out um, what happened, you know, emotionally recovering from what had happened. And then through some more other Somali friends um, who were teaching at the university here in Djibouti, they invited us to come here because they knew that we had had really committed to being in this part of the world for a long time and that nine months, even 10 months is not a long time. And so part of it was we had this welcome from Somalis who knew what we'd been through, knew our heart commitment and invited us to stay. So we came then to Djibouti in 2004 and there's been all kinds of adventures and kind of dramatic things over the years, but nothing again, ever as much as there was in that first year. And so now it feels like this is really our normal, normal life. It's, um, it doesn't sound normal, I think, to a Minnesotan American, but now it's where I've been for almost 20 years. And um, yeah, so the welcome from local people, our own deep commitment to see something through um, to not quit when it got hard and to um, to trust God that even in that fear and the loss of things that we experienced in 2003, that he would still be with us and still had a purpose for us. Um, and, and even maybe this was the intention. I don't know the intention to get us to Djibouti through Somaliland, you know. I know that part of your ministry work or your uh, advocacy is uh, for what you have learned, how um, Muslim friends' devotion to uh, the pillars of Islam, uh, that's, uh, you know, their, their creed, prayer, and pilgrim, um, led you to rediscover ancient Christian practices um, that we have either uh, lost or neglected. So talk to me about this aspect. You are, uh, so if, is it okay to ask you whether you were uh, uh, you are uh, evangelical, Catholic, wh where do you stand, and how this uh, this understanding of Muslim traditions or living among them is uh, causing you to reconsider some of these traditional practices? 
Sure. Yeah, you can ask me that. Um, I grew up in a Baptist church. Okay. Um, still, I'm a member of a Baptist church. And so my personal church tradition was, you know, evangelical, pretty, very much non-liturgical and very individualistic. It was, I've had a beautiful upbringing. I'm very thankful for the, the roots that I have in that tradition. But what I found with my Muslim friends is that they have a, a different way of thinking about prayer or fasting or pilgrimage. Um, and, and faith here in Somalia and in Djibouti, faith is very much a part of everyday life. As opposed to in, in the United States here, I hear the call to prayer five times a day from several mosques around my house. Um, people are referencing faith and prayer and God every day in regular conversation. And so it's very easy to talk to my friends about their religion and about my own because it's just a part of life. And so I started to see that, you know, during Ramadan, the whole country is fasting all together and it's not a secret thing. And they're celebrating breaking the fast at the end of the day together. And so in that sense, um, and, and so many other practices that they do of prayer, for example, they're doing it together. They're doing it physically by, by bowing in the Salat. Um, they kneel, they bow, they stand back up. It's a very physical thing and it's corporate. And so those were aspects of faith that I had not really experienced myself. And I was intrigued by that. And as I started to look at those practices, I realized, you know, I think in Christianity, there are these traditions, just not part of my own denominational background. Um, but there's definitely traditions of pilgrimage within Christianity. And, um, you know, there's Lent, there's times of corporate fasting that I had never really deeply thought about and certainly hadn't participated in before. And so, yeah, the looking at my Muslim friends and the way they practiced faith required me to ask more questions of my own faith, partly because they would ask me questions. Why are you not praying in a group? Why are you fasting all by yourself instead of with a community? Mm. Um, and so, but because we were different, I was challenged to actually reflect on and then learn about some of these other things that were actually part of my own faith tradition. Yeah, that's so um, amazing because uh, Eastern Christianity always uh, um, held these traditions very uh, sacred. So community um, coming together and fasting uh, three times a prayer. Uh, still in my dad's church back in Pakistan, they pray to three times a day, early morning and noon and then evening. Um, and I was, you're right, in the United States, I do miss that uh, aspect of church being open 24-7, whoever wants to come in, um, or uh, the idea of when fasting starts, it's like everyone is coming together. Uh, just mm -hmm. the way Muslims are so excited about the fasting season, Christians are in Pakistan very excited about fasting season too. And they fast. Mm -hmm. it, it, and it's not that uh, um, we can't assume that everyone is fasting with the right spirit, mm -hmm. but yet, the spirit of unity is there that they're doing it together as a as a um community so that's mm -hmm. really powerful um yeah there's something so powerful about knowing that mm -hmm. people both in my neighborhood or all around the planet are doing the same thing with me that sense of belonging and being part of a the body of christ right that's what it is it's the body of christ and it's global and it's huge and that's um i find that really encouraging and inspiring to my faith 
So how do you communicate that to American uh, um, Christians? Because if you are not Catholic or you are not Orthodox uh, uh, Christian or some of those uh, other, uh, for example, Lutheran or um, uh, other denominations that have liturgical part in their or traditions in their denomination or services, uh, how do you talk to a Baptist person, a Bible uh, going um, Bible church going person who actually um, have even uh, uh, stepped away from uh, doing Lord's Prayer in the services because it's too traditional, um, it's too liturgical. So what do you do? How do you approach them and share these things? That is also a good question. I haven't spent a lot of time with that community because I've been here so much, but when I do talk about it with friends, I think about it in that way of the body of Christ and the global body of Christ and participating in this thing that has historical and traditional depth. Actually, um, one of my daughters was just baptized a couple of weeks ago, and we had a long conversation about the tradition of baptism. And her question was, is that fact that this is part of a tradition does that mean that I'm doing it just because of the tradition? And so it's therefore less meaningful or is the fact that this is part of a historical tradition, does that make it more meaningful? And so we had this really interesting conversation thinking about what are the, um, what are these things about Christianity? Like you said, the Lord's prayer, the Eucharist baptism, these are very distinctive things about Christianity. And they're things that the church has done since the days of the early church. And so the power of some of these liturgical things, I think part of it anyway, is, is kind of tapping into that deep history. Often as Americans, we are so focused on the future and forward momentum and progress and things like that, that we forget to look back and to really cherish what has brought us to this point. What are the deep good truths that we can participate in um, with our faith ancestors, you know, the people that have gone before. And I think there's, power in participating in that tradition. So it's the body of Christ, both now globally, you know, me praying here and your church in Pakistan and the church in the United States and wherever else. And it's us participating in the body of Christ throughout time. Yeah. Are we asking the right questions when it comes to traditions and rediscovering the um, historical uh, Christianity or historical um, narrative of these practices that um, that even Muslims have adopted from Christians uh, um, and uh, Jewish communities. Are we asking the right questions when we talk about uh, reaching the new next generation or the current generation? Uh, what do you think? Hmm. I think one thing we need to ask about them is what do they mean for this generation? Like my daughter, she's in high school. So what does baptism mean for her? Um, and she actually wasn't very much aware of the historical tradition, again, because she's grown up in a less liturgical home as well. Um, and so I think in order to help them or help us even ask good questions, we need to have some of that history um, to know where this came from and what does it mean now? How do we communicate this to our current generation? What does the Eucharist mean? Um, why is this something that's special or different? Does it have meaning, um, you know, that the table is welcoming to all, that all are welcome to come and participate in the body and blood of Christ? Um, 
what does that actually mean for how we interact with our neighbors and the people in our church community and in our workplace and our neighborhood? Um, yeah, I don't know if we're asking the right questions or not, but I think having some of that history and then um, thinking about how does this practice impact our actual lived experience and when we come out from the church, those are things that I would encourage um, all yeah. of us to be asking. Yeah, and I think part of the reason is uh, cultural influence. I think because you are in a cultural environment which is uh, infused with the uh, religious practices, um, the environment itself is very religious. Even the even the uh, um, most liberal person somehow is religious in uh, mm. in in Muslim context. So somehow, uh, whether the way they wear their clothes or the way they shake their hands or the way they interact with other human beings or even the way they um, give uh, um, you know money to uh, baggers in the street or even the baggers in the streets um, mm -hmm. everything somehow I think when you are in a culture where uh, everything is departmentalized and uh, uh, the idea is uh, uh, religion is no longer uh, uh, needed, then mm -hmm. things tend to be different. People think differently. And that goes back to like how our academia is right here in the United States. Uh, uh, schools, whether you're talking about um, public schools or you're talking about uh, college and universities, um, we don't have that structure. We, we teach people very... Um, we are very different in our teaching method. Whereas mm -hmm. I remember growing in Pakistan, everything, I still uh, tell people that everything, somehow my teacher um, were able to bring Islam in everything, in everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, you are talking about uh, social study and they're talking about Islam. You're talking about mathematics, they're talking about Islam. Somehow, I do not know why, but it felt uh, up until I got here in the United States that every course every subject somehow they had uh, um, Islam in there religion mm -hmm. was part of that so um, in, in, in other words uh, life is influenced by religion and the within life whatever makes that life is influenced by religion but here in the United States I think that's uh, so different uh, religion is a choice I guess and uh, because of that choice uh, um, and the world is just moving away from at, at least the Western world is trying to move um, away from religion as far as it can. So therefore, even the churches that are Bible believing churches tend to stay away from anything that uh, has the, um, the smell of religion because lit liturgy uh, equates uh, with religious practices. So, um, so therefore, the more, every other church plant I am seeing here is, well, let's meet uh, in a neutral place. Let's mm -hmm. uh, have a darker room where you can't even see the people who, may, how many people are sitting on the, uh, on, on, you know, um, in the audience. Uh, those kind of things. I'm not against those things, just so you know. I think mm -hmm. uh, whatever it takes, we got to reach uh, other people. But at the same time, it's just taking us away, far, far away from uh, 
um, any kind of liturgy. It's just painful to see how the culture has continued to influence the the church, and church is just just um, not moving uh, forward with the uh, by by bringing some of the historical stuff. So one of the practices that I often liked in uh, liturgical um, churches or even Eastern churches is the kneeling. Um, mm. We don't have kneeling, right? In in our churches. I mean, in, in the church I am, I'm senior pastor of this church and uh, I just took this uh, position in um, August, this past August. And one of the things I was talking about was like, um, you know, in my previous church, at least we had the platform on the front where you can kneel down um, toward the end of the sermon. You can invite people like, hey, if you want to pray, if you want to just spend time in prayer, please come. And here we don't even have the space because the it was not uh, intentional, right? You make room when you're intentional. So has your prayer life changed over there? Do you kneel kneel down to? What do you do? How do you pray? You know, I don't actually kneel. Um, although I do pray with more of my body now. Sometimes I'll just take a walk and pray while I walk, pray for the things that I see. Uh, I wish that I did more, kneeling more. And that's one of the things that I do find really beautiful about Muslim prayer is how they embody the prayer. There is a holiness when you kneel. It's it's very physical, and you're you're acknowledging with your body worship of a holy God that is um, definitely, like you said, absent from even my personal practice now. Even after all these years, sometimes I do kneel, but it's not on a consistent basis. And um, I, there's just the way that faith and religion permeates everything here, like you said, it's um, just so much a part of everyday life that the, there's not a lot of separation. Whereas in the the church I grew up in, the American church, there is that both stark separation. And then also even in the church, if you see someone kneeling, it seems like, it, oh, wow, they are either a little bit excessive mm-hmm, <laughs> in their mm-hmm. practice or very emotional, or there's something weird going on and people really notice and uh, I think that's a real shame because it is a beautiful thing to do that with your physical body. It, I feel like it makes, it helps me practice faith more. Um, you know, as I laughed a little bit when you were talking about how your teachers could make everything go back to religion. Um, one time I was cutting my fingernails and my mm-hmm. friend saw me doing it. And she said, well, you need to make sure that you burn those after you cut them. <laughs> she was concerned that someone would, you know, curse me by using my fingernails. Um, and that's not an Islamic thing. That was more of a, a folk practice idea that she had, but it's just an example of how spirituality is part of everything. And I have been very much influenced by that. So um, even though I don't kneel, like that's not a physical thing I do, I do use my body more, um, whether it's even dancing um, or swaying, moving my hands more, you know, not even Baptist, Minnesotan Baptists, they're not very charismatic, <laughs> not very demonstrative with their hands while they're worshiping, but I've definitely gone more that direction. Um, I think our bodies are made to move in worship. And um, yeah, I love, I think that we should do more. We should have yeah. more kneeling churches. We should just, and not be judging people if they participate in that. Just yeah. let people experience the spirit and their worship, how they feel led. Yeah. 
Yeah, you're you're right, and so it's just uh, um, you know such a difficult uh, um, thing to make uh, um, a case for liturgical or even like some of these traditions that I think will help people when you are your body, your your posture, like physical posture, um, represents uh, what's going on inside of you, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. we need that, not for people to tell ourselves that hey you need to literally show humility. You need to exercise humility by kneeling down, going in that uh, uh, prostate uh, uh, position where you're like all the way on, on, the, on the floor. Um, let me uh, close with a couple of questions. Um, so what is your view on uh, um, God and Allah? Are uh, God and Allah the same? Uh, what happens when one's ideas about God and the Bible crumble and the only people around are Muslims? What, what do you do then? And then finally, what happens uh, What happens is, let me, let me ask you, the, let, let's go back because the, both questions are pretty big. Uh, yeah. Second one is your life question, but the first one is a very common question. I all the time, I see these tracks everywhere uh, from, I don't know, 70s, 80s, 90s, I don't know but they literally tracks are written to uh, make uh, Muslim friends angry because they equate Allah with uh, an idol God. So what is your view? Are God and Allah the same? Well, you're just gonna ask that big question, right? <laughs> yeah, I have to. I'm sure you have also your own convictions from your experience and background. Um, okay, so there's two levels of that question, right? There's the linguistic level and there's the theological level. On a linguistic level, for me, there's, it's Allah means God in terms of linguistics. So I also speak French. I speak Somali. Dieu or Ebe in those two languages, they mean God. To me, that is, um, you know, in the Arabic Bible, it says Allah. So for me personally, that's a settled question. The theological question is much more complicated, and I think it needs to be nuanced. Um, there's all kinds of ways to talk about it. I do feel like this, and this is my personal conviction that my Muslim friends are worshiping God. I do not think that they're worshiping an idol or a demon God. I think that, okay, here's how I'll say it. I'm going to rephrase it, that they are directing their worship toward the same God that I'm directing my worship toward. I do believe that um, true worship comes through Jesus Christ. Um, and so I think that there's a difference there. There's a, an aiming or a directional intent with worship. And then there's whether or not it's true worship reaching all the way to God, if that makes sense. Um, so that's how I view it myself. I, um, you know, when I look at their, my friends who are devout and sincere um, in their faith, that's, that's what I picture it as, that we are aiming our both of us are aiming our worship and our faith in the same direction. Hmm. Very, very interesting. Uh, definitely. I I agree. Yeah, I agree with you with the linguistic part and uh, I'm going to leave it there. It's a good response <laughs> and I'm going to let uh, people wrestle with that. Um, so the second part of this question was, uh, so what do you do when you are surrounded by a Muslim uh, community and uh, um, idea about God and the Bible uh, is is different in that community. You, your idea of God and Bible is so 
sacred to you, you truly believe that this is it, but then 99% around you are completely, you know, believe, uh, you know, they're, they're opposing that idea, basically. What do you do? Um, well, for me, I asked a lot of questions. Um, I, they were asking me questions. And so um, I had to really reevaluate, okay, why do I believe what I believe? Now I'm a minority. Now the, the culture is not my culture. Um, I'm kind of being tested by difference here. I'm being challenged. So for me, I had to look back into the Bible and into um, my theological tradition and really wrestle with, do I believe this? And why do I believe this? And so um, it, I did ask a lot of questions. I did a lot of uh, rereading of scripture um, and just coming to the deep conclusion that, yes, this is, this is what I believe. Um, and it was the questions of Muslim friends that actually you know, re-inspired that search to deepen the convictions that I already held. Um, and so, you know, one, one example I think of when I talk with my friends, um, there's this idea in Islam that you could, your works potentially could help you get into paradise, that you'll be judged on whether you're good or bad. Um, and when we talk about things like that, it reminds me of how thankful I am for grace because I will never make it based on my own good deeds into paradise. Um, and so conversations like that help point me to what I really love about my faith tradition, my Christianity in um, the grace that I have in Jesus for forgiveness of all my sins. So I guess the, that's what I do. I ask a lot of questions. I listen to their questions um, and think about where they're coming from and then go back and think about what I'm really thankful for and what I do love and believe. That's awesome. All right, let's close with a joke. Tell me a joke. <laughs> oh my goodness, a joke. Yeah, right? After such a serious talk, we got to finish with a joke. We don't want to leave people just wondering. We want to make sure they are like back to their regular or real world. <laughs> I, am, I don't feel like I'm a very funny person. That oh, is really on. a test. <laughs> yeah, um, right? I'm trying to think if there's a, I, mean, I have some Somali folktale jokes, but I don't think anyone would find them funny. The sense of humor is very different. Um, I'll tell, can I tell a folktale story? Okay. What a Somali character. So there's a Somali character named Igal Shidad and he's a coward. So he's just a guy that they make fun of in a lot of their stories. Um, so one day he's got some enemies and they want to come kill him. So he runs to his wife and he says, roll me up into this rug. And so then you can hide me from my enemies so they won't kill me. So she puts him in the rug and they roll it up. So he's inside it, his whole body is hiding and the enemies come and they say, where is Egal Shidat? And he shouts out from the rug, tell everybody that he's dead. <laughs> this is wonderful. This is really good. That's a really good story. Oh, this is really good joke. Thank you so much, uh, Rachel, for being here. And uh, your work is definitely um, important. And I think, especially for the Western audience, we need more people like you in the field where uh, the idea is not to just uh, uh, glorify Western culture rather or Western Christianity. Whether uh, we are in the West or in the East, uh, we are looking for 
what truly the Bible teaches. And uh, many of these traditions that uh, Muslims are practicing today, um, whether Muslims agree or disagree, do come from the Bible, from the biblical traditions mm -hmm. and Bible itself. And I think it's important mm -hmm. for Christians to not uh, uh, just dis because intentionally when we distance ourselves from something because somebody else is uh, uh, practicing and we feel like, oh, because this is their religion uh, and we just stay away uh, from, from the blessing that that tradition can bring. Uh, I think that's, uh, that might be a uh, wrong thought. Um, we should be learning from each other. Um, I think we can even learn from the secular world certain things. Um, uh, God has placed his image in everybody, right? We are made on the image of Christ. We are made on the image of God. And uh, even if the image is distorted, still it's the image of God. And uh, mm -hmm. God has given that intellect. God has given, he has given man um, in all times, he has always kept, uh, uh, somehow he's kept his focus in every community, whether we are talking about 4,000 years ago in India somewhere or Syria, wherever we are, thousands of years ago, God was there. He has never uh, forsaken uh, his creation. And I think uh, uh, there is so much to divide us, but there are things that can unite us. So if we have a a conversation that can unite us, then we may be able to share the love of Christ and the, the gospel, true gospel message too. But if we just continue to um, divide our communities, that's only going to hurt. And that's the message for Christians, but also the message for Muslims too. Mm -hmm. So praying for you. Thank you so much for being with us. And uh, uh, hopefully audience uh, will give us some response and we'll bring you back meanwhile i really enjoyed this thank you so much you've been listening to our urban voices with dr alphonse javed which presents christian narratives through diverse voices that impact urban ministry please check back for new episodes every week